listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Sunday, we looked at uh, the post-rising uh, of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 12, and then for Good Friday, we continued in the Gospel of John, if you were here that Friday evening. Last week, we're, we were in John chapter 20, so we've spent three weeks in the Gospel of John, and now we're fixing to spend the next seven weeks in the Gospel of John looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And we're going to break those down and look at each of them individually. But before we do that this morning, I would like to take just a few minutes and give you a, an overview of the Gospel of John. And always whenever you look at a book or you read anything, you maybe look in the foreword or the preface or maybe in the first chapter, and there's going to be some indication as to why the author wrote the book. And in John chapter 20, a verse that you need to remember, and verse number 31, John tells us why he wrote this gospel. Now, why do we need to know why John wrote the gospel? Because if we understand why John wrote the gospel, then we can understand the things that he's writing. In other words, what kind of case is he trying to make for this assertion, this conclusion that he's drawing about Jesus in John chapter 20 and verse number 31. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this verse, number one. Number two, I want to do a whiplash overview of the gospel of John before we actually get into uh, John chapter 8 and verse number 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So, so John chapter 20 and verse 31, here's what John is saying about what he has written. But these are written so that you may believe right? If you run across somebody that says, I don't believe, probably one of the best places to send them is to the gospel of John, because these things were written so that you may believe, right? What, what does he want me to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's critical. Either you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or you don't. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to make some exclusive universal statements about himself that everybody either believes or doesn't believe, and everybody needs to believe. And if you don't believe it, you're in trouble this morning. So he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we want you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We want you to believe in Jesus Christ. But we also want you to understand that apart from Jesus Christ, you are in darkness, not light. You are in death, not life. And the only way that you can be made alive is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's, that's where John is, is coming from this morning. But now, what, what are the, what's the skeleton that John hangs this thesis statement on as we look at the gospel of John? And I, I want to uh, just encourage you to look at several things that come from the gospel of John so that we have some understanding of what we're looking at when we look at the I am statements, because these I am statements that Jesus makes are, again, this, this, this internal architectural structure of the Gospel of John, but there are other things. And let me just give you a few of them briefly. Number one, even before you get out of chapter one, we have seven titles of Jesus Christ. Now, he's given us this introduction in the first half of chapter one where we're looking at John 
the Baptist. And John the Baptist, I think it's interesting that John the Baptist says, I am not, right? Jesus is saying over and over again, I am, I am, I am. He's bringing that out of Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 14. He's bringing that out of Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. Uh, the, the I am is, is all over the place there. We'll get to that in just a few minutes, hopefully this morning. Um, but, but when you look at the second half of chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, we see seven titles for Jesus. Here they are. He is called the Lamb of God, the Son of God. He is called Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of Israel, and Son of Man. So here John is establishing who Jesus is. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to believe that he is the Son of God because I want you to have life. The second thing we see in the Gospel of John is that there are seven distinct witnesses who proclaim to others who they have grown to understand after considering the evidence of who Jesus Christ is. We have seven witnesses. Who is Jesus Christ? If we were to put people on the witness stand this morning, this book is giving us seven witnesses who probably started out at the place where they didn't believe and came to a place of believing. I think that's important for us to understand that there are some folks that struggled with believing and understanding who Jesus was. But after looking at Jesus and after considering the evidence that, that bore out the, the reality of who he was, they came to this conclusion that he was exactly who John in chapter 20 and verse number 31 says he is. We, we see that uh, John was a distinct witness in John chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. We see that Nathaniel was a distinct witness in John chapter 1 and verse 49. We see that after Jesus went to the, 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 the well where the, the Samaritan woman was there, she, she runs out and she says, come and see this, this man who has told me everything about me. And all of a sudden now after she goes in and shares her testimony of Christ, everybody in that Samaritan village is coming saying, this is the Christ. This distinct witness, who is this man that's showing up here? Peter in John chapter 6 and verse 69 gives witness to the evidence of who Christ is. The blind beggar in John chapter 9 and verse 38. Martha in John chapter 11 and verse number 27. And Thomas in John chapter 20 and verse 28 that we looked at last week, the guy that we called Doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. He saw, now he believes. So we've got not only these seven names in chapter 1, but throughout the Gospel of John, we have these seven distinct witnesses who proclaim to others who they, what they have grown to understand about Jesus after looking at the evidence. The third thing we see in the Gospel of John is that there are seven additional I am statements where Jesus is just saying, I am he, I am he. We see that in 426 and in 620 and in 824, 828, 858, John chapter 13 and verse number 19, and in John chapter 18 and verse number 15. You say, why are you going so fast? I can't write it down so fast. I'm not able to take all of that in. I don't want you to take it all in. I don't want you to write it down. I want you to be overwhelmed by it. I want you to be overwhelmed by the evidence that is in the Word of God as it relates to all of the different layers that are put before the readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the only source of life for anybody, anywhere, for all time. Right? So let us, let us be overwhelmed. You say you're talking too fast. I, I've got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to talk fast. I want to get through it, but I want you to understand it. And if you just leave feeling overwhelmed, if you leave feeling like you've got theological whiplash, that's okay. Because when we consider this, it's going to give us some form of theological 
whiplash, but the reality is, is that every bit of it fits together like a hand in glove to bring us to the conclusion that John was trying to drive us toward in John chapter 20 and verse number 31. The fourth thing we see is seven signs, seven signs that prove who Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is. Seven signs. We begin in chapter 2 and verse 11, Jesus turned the water into wine. We'll mention that here in a few minutes. The second sign was the healing of the sick boy in, in John chapter 4 and verse number 54. The third sign was the healing of the paralytic at the pool in John chapter 5. The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. The fifth sign was the opening of the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9. That plays into what we're going to be looking at in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The sixth sign is, is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And essentially, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he knew that he was signing his death warrant. In other words, after that happened, the Pharisees said, we got to kill him now, and we need to kill Lazarus too. In other words, Jesus, un, uh, under, according to the sovereign plan of God, literally was sticking his finger into the eye of the Pharisees saying, come get me, come crucify me now. That was the plan of God. That was the plan of God. But this was the sixth sign. And the seventh sign, of course, in John chapter 20 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so all of that is in addition, again, like I've said, uh, the, the, that are the seven I am statements, all of which provide convincing proof for John's assertion in John 20, 31. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And life is found in no other place than in Jesus Christ. You say, why should that matter to me? I believe what you're saying. You may believe what I'm saying, but here's, here's what I will tell you that we are struggling with today. We are struggling with trying to find life in things other than Jesus Christ. We are struggling with trying to find life in things other than Jesus Christ. Or if we say that we know Jesus and believe in Jesus, we want Jesus to help us get life out of the things that we think are life. So Jesus is like, you know, the, the seasoning on my salmon. My wife sent me to the grocery store the other day. Does anybody's wife ever send them to the grocery store? Raise your hand. Does, does your wife send you to the grocery store to find stuff that does not exist on this continent? Amen. Amen. And, I, and I, I look, and I look, and I look. And, the, the, and, and listen, the last thing you want to do if you're a manly man is ask somebody where something is when you go somewhere. Amen. I mean, if, 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 if it says on the aisle spices, then you can find the spice aisle without asking somebody. But you know what I couldn't find? I couldn't find the salmon seasoning. And they were out of it. And so I had to come back home and eat a piece of salmon without any seasoning on it. And we think Jesus is the, the spice of life. I know what life is. And I know what my, I want my life to be. I want to I be financially secure. I want something nice to drive. I want somewhere nice to live. I want my, my kids to be great kids. I want all my friends to think I'm amazing. And, and by the way, every atheist wants that too. Jesus is not saying, I want to come and make your idea of life better. Jesus is saying, I am life. And you need to understand that. I am life, period. I am life. And this book is designed to show us that Christ and Christ alone is life. So we've looked at these sets of sevens that John intentionally puts there to catch the reader's eye, to catch the reader's attention, to captivate the reader's mind to overwhelm us with the evidence for who Jesus Christ is. But then, then the, the second thing we see in the Gospel of John is that, that John builds 
this, this argument or this evidence around four Jewish institutions and four Jewish festivals. And we need to understand that because when, when Jesus stands up and says, uh, I am the, 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 the bread of life, that's in a context, right? When he's, he stands up on the last day and they've been pouring water on the, the rock, which is symbolic of, of something that happened back in the Old Testament with, with Moses, Jesus says, hey, I, I am living water. And when, when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, something is happening there in uh, the, the temple um, as, it re- as it relates to this festival. So I want to take just a second and look at these institutions. The four institutions that John builds this evidence around, number one, is the institution of marriage. Here's the pattern in the, in the book of John. You need to understand this. We need to under- understand this by way of application. We need to understand this by way of evaluating our own heart. Here's what happens. Jesus does a sign. Jesus per- performs some act that points to him as being the Christ. And as soon as he does something, controversy ensues. In other words, the Pharisees, are following him around. They're trying to find fault with him. The Pharisees are scared of losing power. They're scared of losing control. They're they're scared of being insignificant, and Jesus is going to uproot them. Jesus is going to um, incense the Romans against them. Jesus is going to do nothing but cause trouble. So every time Jesus does something, they come back at Jesus with arguing and complaining and grumbling. That, That is a pattern that is established. We need to pay attention to that. We need to notice that. So, so four institutions. Number one, we see that, that Jesus is revealed and his kingdom is revealed through the institution of marriage. And at the marriage in Cana of Galilee, uh, they ran short of wine and Jesus turned the water into wine. And they're like, man, this is the most amazing wine ever. This is the greatest wedding ever. Who in the world brings out the, the best wine for last, and essentially, Jesus is saying that the institution of marriage points to me. And in fact, this marriage and the institution of marriage and my generosity, Jesus would say, that I have expressed at this wedding by providing all of this amazing wine for everybody is a picture, according to Isaiah chapter 25 and verse number 6, is a picture of my heavenly kingdom when it is established and we're all going to gather together and celebrate and enjoy my goodness and my generosity. Marriage points to Jesus. Think about that before you get married. Think about that while you are married. Think about that before you feel like you just can't tough it out. The purpose of my marriage and your marriage is not for me to be happy or for me to be fulfilled or for us to have some kind of great relationship that's based on the value systems of the world. Don't get caught up in that. The purpose of my marriage and your marriage is to point people to Jesus Christ. So he brings in this institution of marriage. Secondly, in chapter 2 and verses, verses 13 to 25, he brings in the institution of the temple. To the Jewish people, the temple was where heaven and earth meet. But the reality is this, the temple was designed to point to Christ and Christ alone. And the reality is this, that, the, that Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. In other words, you have the one that the temple points to, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, standing right in front of you. Heaven has come to earth, and Jesus, the Son of God, is going to die for our sin and our place like those animals that were being sacrificed in the temple died as a temporary substitute. Jesus is the permanent substitute, and he said it is finished, and no more sacrifices are necessary. And if you want to bridge the gap, if you want to make it to heaven, if you want to understand how heaven has come to earth, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal reality that the temple points to. Jesus is the eternal reality that marriage points to. We come to John chapter 3, 
and Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. The rabbi having a conversation with the rabbi. So we see this institution of the, the teacher or the rabbi. Nicodemus is basically thinking like a good Pharisee would that humanity needs more accurate information, that humanity needs more good teaching. But what Jesus came and said is you must be born again. Why? Because while teaching is good and, as it, has, and it has its place, what we need is a new heart, not just better information. And he lays that out so clearly as he, as he talks to and enters into this conversation with Nicodemus. The point of teaching is not to expand the brain or to exalt the teacher, but to expose our heart that is in desperate need of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is in, to expose our heart that is in desperate need of supernatural, radical transformation that can only occur when we believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth institution is this sacred well in chapter 4. I already mentioned that. You know the story of the woman at the well if you've grown up in church. Maybe you don't know the story of the woman at the well, but the story of the woman at the well is about a universal unsatisfied thirst. Now, I'm going to use the word universal several times in my message today. Let me just... Let me just in case somebody walks out and says, I think that preacher's a universalist. I'm not a universalist, okay? I believe in the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely necessary for anyone to be saved. And if you do not rest your hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if, if you do not believe that Jesus came and lived the life that you could not live and Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, if you do not believe that Jesus and Jesus alone died and was sufficient to pay your sin debt and the full fury of God's wrath was poured out on his son, and if you do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then you are lost. And the only way to be saved is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in him. When I use the term universal, I'm not saying that I'm a universalist nor subscribing to universalism. I'm just saying when, when I say universal, I'm saying that there are problems and issues that are common to all of humanity. And there in this text, John chapter 4, he is showing us that there is this universal problem among human beings, and that universal problem is a problem of unsatisfied thirst. You say, what do you mean unsatisfied thirst? Well, I drank some water over here just a minute ago, and I'm thirsty right now. My mouth is dry. You may hear this microphone picking up the, the dryness between the roof of my mouth and the top of my tongue. I may be clicking and clacking as I talk. I don't know. All my teeth are mine, they're not loose, but my mouth is dry because there is this, this universal, unsatisfied thirst. Every one of us was created with it. Every one of us has a universal, unsatisfied thirst, and we see that in, in, in Jesus dialoguing with the woman at the well. He said, woman, if you knew who I was and what I could do for you, you could have water, and if you drank this water, you would never thirst again. You can have living water. You can have eternal life. You can have eternal love. You don't have to go from man to man to man, from bed to bed to bed, from relationship to relationship to relationship. All of the thirst and all of the hunger, where do you get hunger from? He is the bread of life. 
He alone satisfies our hunger. But every time I sit down to eat, I should be reminded that while I ate breakfast and I ate some cookies at 10 and I'm ready to eat 12 nuggets and some fries at 12 and I'm ready to eat something at 3 and I'm ready to eat at 5 when I get home because I'm constantly hungry, right? Every time I am hungry and I sit down to satisfy myself temporarily with food, I need to remind myself that Jesus is the bread of life and he satisfies me eternally. Every time it gets dark outside, I need to be reminded that I can't see, right? I need to be reminded that, that we dwell in darkness, but Jesus is the light of the world. And I need to be reminded on a daily basis that, that, that I live in spiritual ignorance, that I live in spiritual darkness, that I live in spiritual death, that I live in spiritual hopeness, hope, hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ. And so when he comes and he shows us that, that he is going to satisfy her thirst and that he will satisfy our hunger and that he will overcome our ignorance with, with light, we need to look to Christ. Everything, even these simplest things, are given to us to point to our need of and for Jesus Christ. Think about it. Let me, t- let me put it in another a line of thinking. Every time we are hungry and every time we are thirsty, and every time we are in darkness, we should be reminded of Christ. But every time we are tempted, we should be reminded that there is a longing deep within us that no sin can satisfy. I hope you hear me this morning. Every time, every time, every time that you're Hungry, you should be reminded that Christ and Christ alone satisfies the deep longings of our heart. Every time you're thirsty, you ought to be reminded that, that Christ and Christ alone satisfies the deep longings of your heart. Every time you, you are in darkness, you need to understand that Jesus is the light of the world and he alone satisfies the deep longings of our heart. And every time that Satan comes and pops that temptation in your mind and he lays sin out before you and he tells you what kind of pleasure or comfort or significance that you can get from that, you need to be reminded that there is no sin that can satisfy you, but Christ and Christ alone satisfies you and me. John Piper said, we were all created to crave the creator and the book of John is about a craving that is in every one of us from so many different dimensions that can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. So those are the four institutions. But secondly, he looks at four festivals. In John chapter 5, he looks at the Sabbath. And he says, hey, I am working on the Sabbath. I'm healing on the Sabbath. But you need to understand that there is no rest that is found in this world. You can take as many vacations as you want to take. You can, you can take as, as, as whatever you want to take, whatever you want to do. Uh, as much recreation, as much um, entertainment. And we're, we're drunk on those things. But, but rest will not come until we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says, as he deals with John chapter 6, he's dealing with the Passover and the wilderness wanderings, and he's dealing with, with manna and God's provision for the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. But Jesus stands up in John chapter 6 and says, you remember that? You remember the manna? He said that pointed to me. I am the bread of life. We also see the the festival of tabernacles, and that's where we're going to land this morning in John chapter 8. And in the, the festival of tabern- tabernacles, we see that in, in chapter 7 through 10, the first part of, ch- of chapter 10, um, he's dealing with the water. He's also dealing with light. 
But he's saying as he stands there, and we'll say this here in a few minutes, as he stands there in the treasury, in the court of women, with four uh, candelabras hanging in the ceiling. As he stands there, he's saying, as they have gone through this, this celebration, this festival, and seen those, those candelabras light up the whole city of Jerusalem, when all of that is over and the flame is extinguished, Jesus has the audacity to stand up and say, I am the light of the world. And so he's, he's uh, coming at these festivals. And then finally, in chapter 10, the, the second part of chapter 10, we see the, the festival of dedication or the rededication of the temple and the celebration. There's a celebration of Judas Maccabees uh, clearing the temple. But essentially, that points to Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. A couple of things before we dive in. And I, I, would, I would encourage you to listen, to, uh, listen, listen carefully. Number one... Um, we see a common theme in the Gospel of John, and it's the Pharisees. And the word Pharisee, you can, you can Wikipedia Pharisee, or you can look up the word in all of its different forms uh, etymologically throughout the history of language and, um, and understand where it comes from, but it essentially means separated. The Pharisees separated themselves from anything that did not align with their interpretation of the Levitical law. And the, the, the Pharisees were constantly trying to sniff out anything wrong. They were critics. They were fault finders. They see everything that is wrong with everybody. They show up in John chapter 8, and they're dragging a woman with them. They're like, we caught this woman in adultery. Where's the man? <laughs> what are you going to do with her, Jesus? Interestingly enough, the one that is going to say, I am the light of the world, bends down and writes. Jesus says, hey, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus is basically saying, if anybody here has a right to throw a stone at her, I do. Because I'm perfect. But the light shines in that moment. And those men are exposed. And one by one, they leave. And she gets up. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Where are those that condemn you? I don't know. Where are they? Neither do I condemn you. But that was the Pharisees. You go to chapter 9. Jesus heals a guy who can't see. Now he can see because he's encountered the light of the world. And those who can see can't see because of their spiritual darkness and ignorance. And they're just fighting Jesus. And this happens throughout the Gospel of John. And, and I just want to just point out a, a, a few things that, that might be of interest to you. We can see in John chapter 6 and verse number 41, the word that is used is grumbling. It's an interesting word. Uh, it, it's, it's grumbling. Um, it, the word grumble means to murmur. It means to whisper. The word grumbling in the Bible, in our context, means smoldering discontent smoldering discontent. It is an, um, uh, let me try to pronounce this word. I've heard people say onomatopoeia. Um, this word is onomatopoetic term. In other words, the word as it is pronounced sounds like what it means. Grumbling or murmuring is, is like the cooing of a dove. You ever, you ever get around doves? You go where... And the doves are like, I'm like, where'd that noise come from? 
you know it's there, but you really don't know where it's coming from. I, they're not opening, I don't think they're opening their beak. There's just something going on down in here. That's what he says grumbling is. That's what the Pharisees are constantly doing. There are these muffled overtones. Chapter 6 and verse 52, they disputed. Chapter 7 and verse 12, he calls grumbling. Same Greek word, muttered. Just, just constantly there. Chapter 7 and verse 43, they caused, it, they caused uh, d- division. But here's the thing. Grumbling, muttering, division, problems. Let me drive a deep stake into the ground here. It's associated with unbelief. It's associated with unbelief. Now, John, John wants us to believe. So it would do us well to examine our hearts to see if there's any in us. Because we might have the information right like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But there really might be unbelief in our heart because we find that we are grumblers or complainers or dividers. That's what the reflection of our heart is. It's not the information that we've logged in our brain or the books that we've read or any of that. It's interesting, too, that we can go back to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14, and 12 guys went in to spy out the land. Y'all know that song, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good, right? You ever sing that in youth camp? What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw grapes and clusters long. Some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. And the ten were grumblers and complainers. And Joshua and Caleb were the only guys that lasted 40 years in the wilderness and went into the promised land. The rest of them died. But the problem that they had was that they were grumbling. Now, this, this is pertinent to John as he deals with institutions and festivals because he's looking back when they had the manna and they were grumbling and the Pharisees are grumbling. He looked back to the water and they were grumbling. He also mentions in 1 Corinthians 10, the same thing. Read 1 Corinthians 10, the first part of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, don't Listen, I'm writing, he said, these things happen historically. These, these things happened back in Numbers chapter 14, and these folks were grumbling, and don't fall for that because these folks died because of it. I would say we all have events and seasons when things don't go our way. Some people complain and grumble and mutter and coo like doves and have this smoldering discontent. People don't complain because they have a reason to complain. Quite frankly, we can all find a legitimate reason to complain. I was driving here this morning, and I was driving a speed limit. And I hope you are not here. But the light, when the light did turn green, I did take my foot off the brake, and I did put it on the gas, and you didn't have to blow your horn twice. And yes, that was me driving back through QT to look for you after I decided I didn't want to wait in the line at Starbucks. I just wanted to say, God bless you. I love you. Believe the gospel, right? We, we, we can all find a legitimate reason to complain. We can all rationalize justification for the verbalization of our smoldering discontent. But that is not why we complain. We complain because we are complainers. We complain because we are gossips. We complain because we are dividers. And I want to warn you this morning and warn me that 
complaining and muttering and dividing and gossiping are all destructive and deadly. And if you are a grumbler or you run with grumblers, it is not because there is something on the outside that needs to be fixed or changed. It's not because you're in a bad situation. It's because there is something on the inside that, has, that, that, that is smoldering that has been there for a long time. Anytime you hear people gossiping or trying to extract information for the sake of gossiping or people are listening to gospel or gossip or people are throwing up gossip, Please understand, do not connect it to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Connect it to a smoldering discontent that is coming out of their heart. Don't, don't miss that this morning. You say, you say well, what, what, are you, what are you trying to get at? I'm trying to tell you, for you and for me, folks, that is, this, is a, this is a tempting thing to do. This is, a, this is a, an attractive thing to do. This is something that makes us feel better about ourselves or better about our problems or superior to people. But it's a dangerous thing to do, and it's destroying us on the inside. And, folks, I'm telling you, if that's happening around your kids, God help them. God help them because you, you're, you're living in a toxic environment. And, and I plead with you this morning to stop that because here's, here's the thing. Jesus was sent by the Father to achieve the purposes and objectives of the Father. And every time Jesus turned, there was always somebody that was standing in opposition to him. Understand this, wherever the gospel goes forth, there's always going to be opposition to the gospel. Wherever there is an opportunity, there are always going to be adversaries. And I would encourage you this morning not to let something that may be a legitimate problem, not let that get in the way of the mission of God. I would beg you and plead with you this morning. I'll continue with my notes. Are there problems? Certainly, there will always be problems. The problem is not that there are problems. The problem is our heart that wants to search and destroy and disrupt the mission of God. So if you're a grumbler, if you're a complainer, if you're a gossip, please Please repent. Please stop. Please get saved. And 99% of it would stop if they didn't have anybody to listen to. So we're all culpable in that. I, I talked to a friend this week, and he said, uh, goes to a large church. People are being saved. I believe the gospel's being proclaimed. Great, great ministry that's just grown up from, from nowhere. I, I'm you know, you know what, I'm sure there would be some things that they do at that church that I disagree with. That doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong. It could be that I'm, I'm wrong and they're right. That's, that's the beautiful thing about disagreement. Sometimes we disagree with people and they may be right. But he said, he said he was walking out. He said, this guy was walking across the parking lot that had been there forever. He said, he said man, what's going on at our church? He said, they got, a, they got a haze machine in there. Now, can I be honest with you? We, ain't, we don't have a haze machine in here. I'm not interested in a haze machine. Um, I don't believe that you're going to die and go to hell if you've got a haze machine in your church. I don't know what Jesus thinks. And here's what I would say. As we talk about church, we, we, we might better get back to what Jesus thinks. And I don't know what Jesus thinks about everything. But, but I, I would, I, and, and so the guy was telling me that, and I said, I said isn't that interesting 
that about 90% or 95% of our region is unchurched and lost without Jesus Christ and all that a long-standing member of the church has got to talk about or worry about is a haze machine? I mean, folks, listen to me. You, you, you know, some of us, I mean, we've got family that are lost without Jesus Christ. And it's simple. Let's, let's keep our focus on the mission of God. And so, so don't lose sight of the bigger picture that there is this reality that John chooses to write and give us words that we can define and understand them in the context. Whenever the gospel is going forth, it's not going to be easy. There are always going to be challenges. They're going to be grumblers. They're going to be complainers. They're going to be gossips. And at the root of that is a smoldering discontent. And there's a good chance that it's an unbeliever. That it's an unbeliever. So let's move into John chapter 8 and verse number 12. I've already mentioned these four giant candelabras that are suspended that are suspended high up in the ceiling of the treasury. And that's where they are. According to John chapter 8 and verse number 20, this is where Jesus is standing when he proclaims what he proclaims in John chapter 8 and verse number 12. These candelabras are hanging there. Um, they've, been, they've been burning every night during the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and someone wrote this in an interpretation of the Mishnah. He said, during this, this celebration where the flame is just bursting forth out of, these, out of these four pans that are filled with oil and it is lighting up the whole city. You can see it from everywhere. It is illuminating everything. Here, here's what they said was happening. Men of piety and good works danced through the night holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestra cut loose, and some, some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles with the light from the temple shedding area, uh, area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. So here's what's been happening every night. They've been lighting these candelabras that are up high, that are burning with this massive flame that we probably cannot even begin to imagine. People are celebrating as they look back, not even understanding what these, these lights represent, although they believe they represent the Shekinah glory of God. They represent the pillar of fire and cloud that went before the children of Israel as it guided them, as it protected them. They believe that's what they were looking back to. And as they were thinking about and celebrating all that God had done, done in their history in filling the, the, the temple of Solomon with his presence and every time fire is seen as a representation of God in the Old Testament. They're looking back, celebrating that. And then Jesus, all of a sudden in John chapter eight and verse number 12 says this. And if you will look at it with me in John chapter eight and verse number 12, the gospel of Luke will not do. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, again, again, in the continuation of the, the, the festivals, the, the feast of tabernacles, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. While they, they still, still probably have some oil dripping and they smell the residue of a flame that was there, Jesus stands up and says, everything that you have just been celebrating points to me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me break that verse down 
uh, four statements. Number one, we see the universal problem. The universal problem is darkness. Everyone is in darkness. Darkness is associated with hell. Darkness is associated with death. Darkness is associated with spiritual ignorance. And this is essentially what we see. These people are spiritually unaware that they are in darkness. Darkness is a gnawing that says there is something more besides the darkness without really knowing it. There's something that is dissatisfying to me that leaves me dead and leaves me with religion or idolatry or ritual or performance or anxiety or restlessness. All that the Pharisees created and did still left them in the dark. And these were the most religious people on the face of the planet. And so there's this universal problem of darkness. We are fallen. We are in sin. And there is no way for us to get out on our own. And we are left in a condition of longing for and craving for something more that we cannot produce on our own. We know that there is something more. We don't know what it is. And we don't know how to get to it. We are in, we are in darkness. We cannot see. Period. And we have no seeing in and of ourselves. So there's the text addresses, number one, the universal problem of darkness. Apart from, listen, all 8 billion people on this globe, apart from Jesus Christ, all 8 billion of us are in darkness. That's, this is how exclusive this statement that Jesus is making is. Secondly, not only the universal problem of darkness, but we see the, the universal proclamation. Jesus says, I am the definite article, light of the world, definite article. I am, I am the light of the world. Now, I want to break it down in, into two parts. Number one, I, I want to deal with the I am. The I am goes back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 14. Basically, burning bush, Moses in the desert for 40 years, 80 years old, thinking, hey, man, I'm just going to be out here shepherding the sheep, trying to raise my family, mind my own business. Good luck, Moses. God shows up in a burning bush. The children of Israel have been in the land of Goshen for 400 years. They're crying out to God, God, would you please deliver us? God shows up to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go to this guy that's probably the most powerful man in the known world at the time, and I want you to go in, and I want you to tell him, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. <laughs> Pharaoh's going to be like, what? And then after Pharaoh picks himself up off the floor and he does a Wikipedia search, who is this guy, who's this idiot standing before me right now that is asking me to let 2 million people go that are building our buildings and taking care of everything that we don't want to take care of? We've got things just like we want them. Essentially, Moses is asking God in the burning bush, on what authority am I going to tell Pharaoh that I'm speaking to him? And the burning bush, God speaks back and says, tell them that I am sent you. I am sent you. We also see that in Isaiah chapter 40, and time would not uh, allow us to look into that, but you can read Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 at some point, particularly 41.4 and 43.10, and 46.4, and 48.12, and you can see the I am statements that are related to God and who he is, and Jesus now is claiming to be God. What does I am mean? I am means the self-existent one. In other words, the one who has always been, who is being, and will always be. But here's what you need to understand, and I need to understand. It is not enough for us to be able to define the I am. It is not enough for us to say that, hey, yeah, I can define God. He is the self 
existed one. He is the one who always is, who always will be, and who is in the present right now. Essentially, this is the personal name for God, which indicates not only that you and I do need to understand that he is the self-existent one, but secondly, he is the one that wants to relate to his people. Don't, don't miss that this morning. The I am is essentially God giving them his personal name. I am revealing myself to you because I want you to know me and I want you to know me personally and I want you to know me experientially. In other words, I don't want to just be information that's in your brain or I don't want to be a definition that's on a book in the shelf. I want to be at the center of your life. I want to be all intertwined in everything you think, everything you say, everything you hear, everything you do. I want to be involved in all that you do with your energy. I want to be involved experientially with you. Don't let us miss that because you've got a bunch of people over here struggling and, and, and Moses is not commissioned to go to them to say, hey, the I am sent me. And by the way, let me define it for you. He is the self-existent one. All right, check you later. No, the I am is the self-existent one. The I am is the one that is revealing his personal name. The I am is the one that wants to be involved in our lives. The I am is the one who is going to come and deliver us. The I am is the one that is going to come and be with us in our suffering. And that is, that is profound. Jesus is saying, I am. I am, I am, I am the self-existent one. And not only am I self-existent, I am with you and I'm going to come and deliver you. But I'm also the light. I, I am the, the pillar of cloud and fire that led you through the wilderness. I am every, every time scripture refers to God as light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 20, I think it's Psalm 27, 1, Psalm 119, 105. He's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, right? What are they thinking about? The pillar of cloud and fire that is guiding them. Jesus is the light. I am self-existent. I am present with you. I am the one who illuminates you. It speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the embodiment of the righteousness of God that is revealed in the law. It speaks of the reality embodied in the one who is the ultimate and final victor over darkness. Jesus is saying that darkness is everywhere. He says that John explains that about him in John chapter 1. Darkness is everywhere. Darkness abounds, but the darkness will not overcome the light. The, the, the light will dispel the darkness. Jesus said, I am that light that overcomes darkness. I am that light that is Yahweh in action. I am the light that reveals and guides and quickens. I am the light that exposes my sin, that shows me the truth, that shows and leads me into a loving relationship with God. There is only one light, and there is only one light for all of mankind. And if you do not have Christ, you are in darkness. And any one of us that would proclaim that to anyone else would have to do that in humility and not arrogance. Because it is a work of God that brings us to that place. The third thing we see is the, the universal promise. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word follow means to, to trust. It means to put your confidence in. Uh, when Jesus makes statements like, hey, eat, eat my flesh, you know, drink my blood, he's basically saying on a practical level, follow me, identify with me, have allegiance to me. He's not encouraging 
cannibalism and don't read that into the text of Scripture. Come after me. Be beside me. Join me in what I am doing. Follow me. J.C. Ryle said, if a man cannot do anything for himself, he can... He cannot do anything better than to trust another and follow him. And we cannot do anything for ourselves. And all that I'm asking you to do today is trust Christ, which means you would follow him. Follow Jesus. Follow the light. Trust the light. Jesus is the light. Or be like the Pharisees and trust yourself and trust your history and trust your ritual and trust your performance, which leaves us in darkness and without hope. Follow me, he says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will not walk around. He's talking about the, 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 world, the world view. He's talking about how we live our life practically. How I live practically will be consistent with the one that I am following. So that, that goes against anybody saying that I, that, I, that I all of a sudden just mouthed some words to heaven and I'm saved. No, Christ comes in. He sets up resonance, gives me a new nature. We've already looked at that. And now my life looks completely different because of how I am walking or living practically. He says, whoever follows me will will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. His presence with his people is life itself. Spiritual life. Life that is sustained by the life of God. And that is the life of eternity. There's so many other scriptures that we could bring in this morning. So we, we see um, clearly, um, we see the, the, the universal problem, we see the universal proclamation, we see the universal promise, and we see the universal pushback. Everybody's pushing back against that. Our fallen human nature pushes back against what Jesus has just said. Our, our subscription to the prosperity gospel pushes back against what Jesus has just said. Jesus wants to be everything to you and me. And quite frankly, if Jesus is not everything to you, you are not living like he wants you to live. There is a life, a quality of life, a quantity of life that is available to you and to me in Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus has proclaimed that to us this morning. I would encourage you to surrender. Let me just, let me just read what, what I've written out here for my conclusion, um, and we'll um, come and remember the Lord. Jesus has taken the simplest things, common, self-evident things that we presume, that we take for granted, things like hunger and thirst and darkness, things like a gate or a good shepherd or the death of a close friend or a vine and its branches, and fruit. He's taken these simple common things that we take for granted and he has exposed our greatest need and craving. And you need to stop there and ask yourself, do I recognize my greatest need and craving? Behind the desire for lunch today, and I know that's what some of us are thinking about, behind the desire for lunch today is a spiritual longing that chips and queso won't satisfy. Behind your desire for lunch today is a spiritual 
hunger. There is a spiritual thirst behind my desire to drink something right now. There, there is a gnawing awareness that something isn't right. And Jesus is saying without apology and without reservation, all that you long for can only be satisfied in me alone. I am and everything else is not. And our soul in darkness and sin goes into self-preservation mode. I will lose control. I will have to give up too much. I don't think that a relationship alone is enough to satisfy. Let me sum it up. John Piper again. We were all created to crave the creator. And until we see and follow the I am, God of very God, we will never rest and we will never be satisfied and we will always be hungry and we will always be thirsty, and we will always be running from sin to sin and idol to idol when what we were created for is standing right in front of us after every ritual and ceremony and saying, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the entryway. I am the good shepherd that you long to walk with. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine that gives life to the branches. I am the life that you long for and that you were created for. Follow me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a piece of bread and a bowl of juice. Your week is not going to be any better or worse if you partake or not. You're not, you're not going to get a raise at work if you partake of communion. You're not going to, your tires are not going to stay pumped up. You're not going to have, I'm not going to say come partake of communion. You won't have any plumbing problems at your house this week or your wife won't get mad at you. This is not magical. This, this has one purpose and one purpose alone. The purpose of this is the same purpose of the candle operas that were hanging there when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. The purpose of this is the same purpose of the man in the wilderness after Jesus had fed 5,000 people and he said, I am the bread of life. But the purpose of this is for us to walk up here and see these symbols and understand that Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you don't see him, you've missed it. If you think this is some ritual that's going to make your life better, or give you some kind of blessing, you're wrong. It's not. The, the, the purpose of communion is to remember the Lord and see Jesus standing there saying, I am your life. Follow me. And I hope this morning that you would take everything inside of you that's saying, I'm life, hang on to me, and you'd let go of it. And I hope that you would come and take the bread and the juice and in your heart and mind say, Lord, I remember you and you are everything, and I surrender to you. I will follow you. You are my life. Let's pray together. Jesus, I, I pray that you would help us to see all that John is trying to show us. I, I pray that your spirit would take the truth of your word and um, grind it into our stony hearts. I, I pray that you would Bring us to a place of humility this morning. I pray that you'd bring us to a place of surrender. And I pray, Father, that you would bring us to a place of great joy. Great joy.
knowing that you have invited us to do and made possible for us to do what you have created us for. I pray that we would run to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to come this morning.